You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can find all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll find some links there. You'll find the link to send me a message. Also, some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece written by Evan Greer, published at thedailybeast.com. Three years ago this month, Congress passed a law that got people killed. The Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act and Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, better known as SESTA-FOSTA, sailed through the House and Senate and were signed into law by then-President Donald Trump in April 2018. The bill's sponsor said the laws were intended to address online sex trafficking by amending Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, CDA, to create new liability for website owners and online platforms. Instead, they wreaked havoc on some of the most vulnerable people in our society. In the immediate wake of SESTA-FOSTA's passage, sex workers, particularly queer and trans folks of color, were cut off from online platforms and tools they used to make a living and keep themselves safe. This included collectively maintained, quote, bad date lists, commonly used to protect vulnerable workers from violent assaults on the job. Sex workers and advocates reported an increase in attacks, arrests, self-harm, and suicide. Quote, we can't screen clients like we used to, which is what was keeping us safe, Lexi, an escort from Florida, explained in an interview with HuffPost. This bill is killing us. Now, four years later, lawmakers are once again obsessed with the idea of changing Section 230. Their reasons vary. Republicans latched onto largely evidence-free claims of anti-conservative bias in content moderation. While their concerns about the power that large platforms hold over what can be seen and heard online are valid, they incorrectly believe that changing or repealing Section 230 will force tech platforms to moderate in a manner more to their liking. Or they could just be cynically trying to rally their base while claiming to be true defenders of free speech. Ironically, according to the data from numerous studies, like this one from the Brennan Center for Justice, The groups most often censored and deplatformed on social media are those which conservatives regularly demonize and attack. People of color, trans women, and Arab and Muslim folks living outside of the U.S., whose speech is systematically ensnared in the wide nets of automated anti-terrorism filters. Democrats, for their part, have misguidedly blamed Section 230 for a litany of real-world harms, ranging from the viral spread of hateful and false content on social media platforms to vaccine hesitancy and teenage mental health. 
They tend to be right about the harms, as well as the ways big tech companies' business practices exacerbate them. But they consistently fail to explain how their proposed changes to Section 230 would actually solve the problems they're identifying. And worse, they often willfully ignore the ways that such changes can backfire and harm the very communities Democrats say they want to protect. All told, nearly 40 bills have been introduced in the last two congressional sessions that would amend Section 230 or repeal it entirely. One of those bills, the Earn It Act, recently passed out of the Senate Judiciary Committee, despite overwhelming opposition from LGBTQ organizations, security experts, and human rights groups. There is a growing sense of inevitability in Washington, D.C. around Section 230. One staffer for a top lawmaker told me outright, look, we have to do something on 230 soon, whether it's good or not. It's unacceptable for lawmakers to legislate with the goal of scoring political points while ignoring the collateral damage to marginalized people's safety and rights. If Congress actually wants to address the harms of big tech and avoid repeating the mistakes that have gotten people killed, it's essential that they learn from SESTA-FOSTA's catastrophic failure. Policymakers in Washington, D.C. need to listen to sex workers. Fortunately, there's a bill that would require the U.S. government to do just that. The Safe Sex Workers Study Act, which was just reintroduced by Democratic Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ron Wyden, as well as Democratic Republicans Ro Khanna and Barbara Lee. It would task the Department of Health and Human Services with conducting a study on the public health impact that SESTA-FOSTA had on sex worker safety. And it would require the Justice Department to study whether the legislation actually accomplished its stated goal of cracking down on human trafficking. Supporting a common-sense information-gathering bill should be non-controversial for any lawmaker who is serious about legislating tech platforms responsibly. Even members of Congress who firmly believe that changes to Section 230 are needed should want to gather as much data as possible to inform their proposals. A report from the Government Accountability Office, GAO, last year showed that SESTA-FOSTA has almost never been used to aid federal prosecutions. Even worse than being ineffective, the loss of platforms has actually disrupted investigations into trafficking and identification of victims. Shouldn't lawmakers want to know more about that? The Safe Sex Workers Study Act has broad support beyond the sex worker community, from prominent LGBTQ organizations like the Human Rights Campaign and the National Center for Transgender Equality, anti-trafficking groups like Freedom Network USA, health advocates such as AIDS United and civil rights leaders including the American Civil Liberties Union and Color of Change. We already know that SESTA-FOSTA set off a tidal wave of deplatforming and content removal. And it wasn't just adult content that was washed away. Platforms' indiscriminate purges led to censorship of artwork, paintings, and cartoons by queer artists and sex education videos made for at-risk youth. Quote, Congress passed FOSTA-SESTA in 2018 largely in an attempt to rid the internet of websites like Backpage that allowed ads for sexually oriented personal services. However, its impact on the internet ecosystem was immediate and dramatic. Lawrence Walters, general counsel for the Woodhull Freedom Foundation, 
which is leading a lawsuit against SESTA-FOSTA, told me. Craigslist promptly eliminated all personal ads in direct response to the new law. Reddit shut down numerous subreddits, and dozens of websites went dark or moved overseas. The law had no noticeable impact on sex trafficking. However, consensual sex work was made more dangerous, Walters added. The lesson in all of this is that big tech platforms care a lot more about covering their butts and protecting their bottom line than they do about standing up for the human rights and free expression of marginalized people. And they will do almost anything to avoid a flood of expensive lawsuits, even if it means cracking down on perfectly legal content or causing direct harm to vulnerable communities. Faced with the threat of liability for moderation decisions and user-generated content, platforms don't moderate more thoughtfully or responsibly. They moderate in whatever way their lawyers tell them won't get them sued. That doesn't reduce online harms like hate speech, harassment, political censorship, disinformation, human trafficking, and child exploitation. It makes them worse or sweeps them under the rug. The lesson of SESTA-FOSTA's failure has implications far beyond sex work and LGBTQ plus expression. Dozens of racial justice, immigrant rights, civil liberties, and press freedom organizations have warned lawmakers about the danger of making rushed changes to Section 230. Quote, We cannot have a conversation about changing CDA 230 without talking about the impacts on people of color, LGBTQ people, Muslims, sex workers, and others who will suffer those consequences of changes to CDA 230 most acutely. Kate Roon, former, formerly of the ACLU and now of the Wikimedia Foundation, the nonprofit that runs Wikipedia, told me. Nadim Nashif, executive director of Seven Amle, and maybe that's pronounced much differently than that, but it is number seven, A-M-L-E-H. The Arab Center for the Advancement of Social Media described widespread censorship of Arab and Muslim internet users, often spurred by pressure from the pro-Israel lobby or right-wing anti-Arab groups in the U.S. Quote, if they could sue social media companies for allowing freedom of expression about Palestine, platforms would be even more likely to have policies that violate human rights and digital rights, he said. Lawmakers from both parties have often described Section 230 as if it is a magical get-out-of-jail-free card specially made for big tech giants like Facebook, Google, and Amazon. They often fail to mention that Section 230 does not immunize platforms if they knowingly facilitate criminal activity, like sex trafficking or distribution of child abuse material. Proponents of changing Section 230 also often fail to recognize that removing Section 230 protections does not automatically change platforms' behavior the way they would like it to. There is a lot of content that is harmful or distasteful but ultimately protected by the First Amendment, meaning that even if a lawsuit wasn't dismissed because of Section 230, it would likely fail anyway. Misleading posts about COVID-19 vaccines, for example, are almost certainly constitutionally protected speech. Creating a carve-out in Section 230 for health misinformation, or even for algorithmically amplifying it, wouldn't change that. All it would do is make lawsuits that are doomed to fail cost a lot more money. Silicon Valley giants can afford the armies of lawyers needed to stave off such an onslaught. 
but smaller platforms, nonprofits, and decentralized open source alternatives that serve marginalized communities would be easily bankrupted. Republican Senator Mike Lee raised this concern in a hearing on the Earn It Act, describing how even a small web forum hosted by a church group could be shut down if they don't have the resources for compliance. That's exactly why Facebook has been aggressively lobbying for changes to Section 230. They know that such changes will only serve to solidify their dominance and monopoly power. Smaller competitors like Discord, Patreon, or Wikipedia would be unlikely to survive. Big tech giant surveillance capitalist business models are fundamentally incompatible with basic human rights and decency. The tech lash is more than justified. But even many of the big tech's most vocal critics agree that urgency should not be used as an excuse to enact regulations that do more harm than good. During her testimony in front of the House Energy Commerce Committee, Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen referred to SESTA-FOSTA and urged lawmakers to be cautious when considering changes to Section 230. Quote, As you consider reforms to Section 230, I encourage you to move forward with eyes open to the consequences of reform, she said. Congress has instituted carve-outs of Section 230 in recent years. I encourage you to talk to human rights advocates who can help provide context on how the last reform of 230 had dramatic impacts on the safety of some of the most vulnerable people in our society, but has been rarely used for its original purpose. If lawmakers really want to rein in the monopoly power and abusive practices of the largest tech companies, they should finally pass a strong federal data privacy law. They should ban surveillance advertising and the type of pervasive data harvesting that drives big tech platforms' harmful algorithms. They should pass antitrust reform bills like the American Innovation and Internet Choice Act and Open App Markets Act. They should call on the Federal Trade Commission to crack down on deceptive business practices, including privacy violations and discriminatory automated decision-making systems. Once they've done all that, if they still believe that changes to Section 230 are necessary, they should first do their due diligence and pass the Safe Sex Workers Study Act to avoid repeating the deadly mistakes of the past. This next piece is published at counterpunch.org and is written by David Rovix. The corporate media shows us an endless stream of patriotic Ukrainians standing up against the Russian menace. Then, in their coverage of more local news among the diverse crowd of truckers and other protesters occupying downtown Ottawa, only the most right-wing participants are highlighted. Meanwhile, if Joe Rogan dares to interview any of them on his podcast, there will be more cries for Spotify to drop him from their platform. Others will say, no, this is censorship. In a small labor rally in Portland, Oregon, the anarcho-Puritan Twitter trolls will successfully prevent a labor musician from singing at a labor rally by using online intimidation and disinformation to convince the young organizers that the Jewish musician in question is anti-Semitic. This is our reality now. This week, like it or not, and I sure don't, all of this stuff is Im- imminently, intimately related. But it generally gets siloed off into different discussions. This happens partly for perfectly innocent reasons and partly for completely nefarious ones. 
It's often innocent because many people can understand the basic principles of free speech versus censorship, but they don't understand where social media algorithms and perhaps even corporate wealth and power fit into the picture. Often it's nefarious because other people understand full well that the issue of rampant disinformation is rarely one of free speech versus censorship, but they frame it that way in order to attempt to distract us from the elephant in the living room, the wizard behind the curtain, the naked emperor. I heard a host on NPR the other day refer to the world's most popular podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience, as a podcast, quote, distributed by Spotify. I kept listening to the national radio story, waiting perhaps for the host to be corrected by a producer or something, for her to say, sorry, I meant to say hosted exclusively by Spotify at a cost of $100 million, or even just hosted rather than distributed, but that correction never came. If you download a podcast app, and I know most of you have never done this since still only around a quarter of the population who has, but if you download a podcast app or just open the one that came with your phone, if you have an iPhone, you will not find the Joe Rogan experience anywhere. This is because it is not distributed by Spotify. It is hosted exclusively by Spotify. It's Spotify programming. It's not really a podcast in the sense that the term is used to be understood as audio content that you can subscribe to as a feed from any podcast app, generally for free. That's how it works if you use the podcast distribu distributing service that Spotify now owns called Anchor. Or if you use the podcasting app that folks like me and the BBC use, Podbean. This is a relatively minor point, but it helps illustrate the inherent confusion in picking apart these questions. The folks who want us to see the issues with, for example, Joe Rogan's choice of guests or interviewing style, are generally concerned not with who he's interviewing, but whether he's spreading dangerous lies to a very large audience, which is, in part, as large as it is because of a whole lot of corporate sponsorship. It's the vast size of the audience exposed to the lies that they see as a problem rather than the notion of Joe Rogan interviewing whoever he wants to. Others will defend Rogan's right to interview whoever he wants to and cry censorship at Neil Young and Rogan's other critics, while intentionally papering over the questions of scale and audience size involved. Between a podcast like Rogan's and a podcast like the millions of other pods out there that are little one- or two-person operations with a monthly audience that may reach four digits during a really active period, Side note, most of us are still looking for that three-digit mark. But that's not the point the free speech versus censorship crowd want to highlight. To my way of thinking, when it comes to $100 million exclusive contracts with massive corporations, we are talking about expensive speech. This is not the free marketplace of ideas or the labor radio podcast network. This is massive global corporate money. When we're talking about this kind of corporate money and corporate influence, the free speech question is largely overshadowed by questions of corporate power. At the very least, any one corporation or one individual who has that kind of reach, really of a monopolistic sort in several different ways, the unbalanced top-heavy nature of the situation is paramount. How to deal with it is another question. But that this is what we might call the principal contradiction we face when it comes to the influence of the biggest music streaming service on the planet 
or individuals like the most popular podcaster on earth. Power and wealth and the extreme and extremely unfair influence of it on all of us, whether we like it or not. And I sure don't. But then even when people do understand the problems presented vis-a-vis the question of speech, censorship, and corporate influence on both what the content is promoted and the laws that may or may not regulate it, the biggest factor of all that so dramatically affects our lives, whether we know it or not, every minute of the day, especially if we spend any time at all on social media platforms or rely on them to get news, keep up on the gossip, discuss issues, or communicate with people, is the least understood of them all. I'm talking about social media algorithms. Everything changes so fast, and I know that anyone my age or older might especially resonate with that statement. The term future shock that was coined back in the 80s is a very good one, and I think more of us are feeling it every day, overwhelmed by the pace of transformation in all kinds of different ways, very much including with technology. Those of us who are old enough to remember the 1990s may look back on the period as a sort of golden age for the internet. The MP3 hadn't been invented yet. It could take half an hour to load a graphic-intensive website. There were all kinds of other issues, but your means of communication were very democratic and straightforward. Email lists could be moderated or not, and especially the many well-moderated email lists out there could function as amazing sources for finding out what's going on in town, or for promoting an event for free. The way it tends to go with high-speed technological change constantly going on is people get future shock and they can't keep adapting, understanding what's changing and how. There are other reasons why some of the big things get lost on a lot of folks. Partly, it depends on your role in society when it comes to social media. If a big reason you get you use social media is for promoting content or otherwise making money through it, the changes can be very noticeable very quickly. For most people, though, who are using social media to communicate, gossip, follow their friends and news stories, scroll their feeds, etc., the changes are much more subtle and often hard to notice at all. But what has happened since the egalitarian days of the early web dominated by grassroots email lists and independent media collaboratives, at least for a certain set of folks at the time, has been the rise of social media. At the beginning, it appeared to many of us that a phenomenon like the news feed would function much like an unmoderated email list. And as the old email lists and other vestiges of the free internet began to gather virtual dust from disuse, and most of the world began to spend most of their time online on a small handful of massive corporate platforms, entities like the ultra-dominant platform Facebook introduced the algorithm-based news feed. When this happened, me and many other content creators who were using platforms like Facebook to promote gigs, tours, songs, etc., noticed immediately, because suddenly we were getting dramatically less attention when we posted most anything. Whereas the day before, if we had more followers on the platform, more people would see what we posted. Suddenly, this was no longer how it worked. Suddenly, you had to pay to boost posts if you wanted people to see them, unless you were posting a picture of your baby or a pet, or you were engaged in a heated argument related to a post. What became the norm was if you posted a link to an article you had spent lots of time writing, which you had published on a platform other than Facebook, like, say, Counterpunch, no one would see it anymore. 
But if you boil down your argument in the Counterpunch article to a few paragraphs on a Facebook post that wasn't a link off platform, people would see it and maybe even engage with it. But the inherent dumbing down phenomenon here was clear. A tweet had to be a certain very short length, everyone knew, but less well known was which sorts of Facebook posts might be seen and which would not, depending on the workings of secret algorithms. The algorithms are secret, and they change. They're blatantly manipulating our perceptions of the world in all kinds of unknown ways. If we weren't, at least in theory, all doing this to ourselves voluntarily, it would be much more alarming. But it's very alarming either way. At one time, many of you reading a piece on Counterpunch might have found your way there because of a link someone posted on Facebook. When they changed the algorithm, overnight this would be the case half as much of the time. It's easy to see how the casual Facebook scroller who is used to consuming a few Counterpunch articles a week because of links posted by friends, might not notice that from one week to the next, they may now only be seeing half as many. They've been replaced by other things, and there's always so much. The people who notice are the writers, the editors, and the treasurers of such publications. It's fairly well known at this point how YouTube's algorithms work. If you're looking for good scientific information on the moon landing, for example, it won't be long before you're being served YouTube's algorithmically generated recommendations for videos about how the landing was faked. Moon landing appears in the description and metadata, metadata indicates people who like videos about the moon landing also don't stop watching when this one comes on. So it goes in the mix. Whether that's the logic of the algorithm, who knows, because it's secret and it changes constantly. When it comes to music streaming platforms, at least from my personal experience, the algorithms aren't so bad. The people who get recommendations about my music because they listen to another artist that Spotify's algorithms thought were similar do keep coming back to me. Assuming it works that way with other artists, Spotify's algorithms seem to have musical tastes of listeners pretty well figured out. But when it comes to learning about what's going on in the world, what may be innocent music recommendation algorithms can suddenly be terrifying. While social media algorithms alone certainly can't be blamed for the increased polarization in society and the fact that what passes for discourse increasingly resembles some cross between idiocracy and the Salem witch trials, they play no small part either. And they also play perfectly into the hands of those who want to use social media to spread disinformation, since that's what social media is algorithmically inclined to do in the first place. Social media is a great equalizer, at least in terms of the ability of random people to make a lot of noise in ways previously unknown. Combine that with the abundant amounts of disinformation, and then add 500 years of the Puritan tradition, and you get the phenomenon known as the Internet Troll, often just called the Twitter troll, since Twitter is designed to facilitate this kind of behavior more than other platforms seem to be. Here we come back to the free speech versus censorship debate, minus any concepts around corporate wealth or power or influence or scale being part of the conversation. The trolls of the left variety hone in on the perceived transgressions of anyone on the internet who gets a little more attention than they do and do their best to take them down. 
if a podcaster with 200 weekly listeners interviews someone who says something offensive for the anarcho-puritan troll of the left variety it's totally irrelevant whether the podcaster is a high school kid in their mom's basement or a multimillionaire in a mansion in los angeles with an audience of tens of millions in fact for the troll mentality the one with only 200 weekly listeners is probably a better target because there's more of a chance of campaign success to successfully get an event or a human being canceled, which causes the troll to rejoice at their achievement. For the rigidly principled troll of the self-styled anti-fascist variety, or wanting to impersonate one, their role is to find anyone who is transgressing by talking with someone with unacceptably right-wing opinions in a public forum of any kind, such as someone's YouTube account with 200 viewers a week, and then hounding them. They pick a target, then start harassing them and anyone they have connections with on Twitter, especially trying to expose their home address, get them fired if possible, and spread any kinds of slander they can come up with that might be believable in order to discredit their target. The motivation of the troll behavior, it seems to me, is multifold. Some of it is undoubtedly undercover operatives engaging in often successful campaigns to disrupt communities, organizations, and careers through these tactics with the quote, volunteers engaging in this kind of disruption. It should be noted that in no small way are their tactics both directly and indirectly facilitated by social media algorithms and other aspects of how certain platforms are organized. But the behavior is rooted deeply in the Puritan tradition of moral outrage, moral righteousness, and moral purity. Thus, it doesn't matter how insignificant your target may be. If they have dared, quote, provide a platform for the wrong person by uploading an interview on a YouTube channel with a very small audience with the wrong person, this is grounds to endlessly hound and condemn the offending content provider. In a sense, only for this most extreme group of puritanical, censorship-happy Twitter trolls does a discussion of media or social media truly boil down to questions of free speech and censorship. Unlike those who see the problems presented by extreme corporate wealth and power or the impact of secret manipulative algorithms for the anarcho-puritan or disruptive element posing as one, all offensive content should be banned and their creators cancelled. Now, I'm supposed to conclude with some kind of an idea about how we dig our way out of this pit of corporate power, widespread disinformation, and domination of large segments of society by a new form of puritanism but I haven't a clue. I only hope that my understanding of the problem has been helpful for someone. Next up, a piece by Hadas Thir, published at dollarsandcents.org. Cryptocurrency will not liberate us. It's the ultimate egalitarian system. Anyone can participate. You don't need a bank. You don't need anyone's permission. So explains Bitcoin billionaire Michael Saylor in a recent interview with Fox News host Tucker Carlson. The point Bitcoin, the point of Bitcoin, Saylor goes on, is to quote, fix the money and the money is energy and energy is life. Oh no, did he just say money is life? Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin, and more than 10,000 others are digital currencies that allow people to buy and sell things online. Cryptocurrencies, or crypto as they're known, 
come in the form of digital coins or tokens, though they function as assets for investment more easily than as means of exchange. Over the last few years and during this past year in particular, cryptocurrencies have gone from being a fringe investment made mostly by hardcore crypto adherents into a $2 trillion industry, including many mainstream investors getting in on the action. Crypto uses a technology called blockchain, and Bitcoin, by far the most widely held cryptocurrency, uses what is known as proof-of-work blockchain technology. A blockchain is a digital database that, rather than being owned by an individual and stored on a single computer, is distributed among computers on a shared network. A blockchain's database is secured through the co cooperation of many computer nodes in the system. In the case of proof of work, this requires computers in the network to verify each transaction by creating and solving complex mathematical questions. In solving increasingly complex random puzzles, the owners of these computers participate in building out a public virtual ledger of all transactions and are rewarded with new bitcoins for their troubles. This is known as Bitcoin mining. An enormously wasteful computer arms race has taken off to facilitate this process. Millions of computers around the world work ceaselessly around the clock to solve riddles whose solutions mean nothing and whose actions produce nothing at great environmental cost. It is estimated that Bitcoin processes annually exhaust the same amount of energy as the entire country of Argentina. A single transaction requires 707 kilowatt hours of electricity, emitting half a ton of CO2. According to Digiconomist Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index, one Bitcoin transaction uses as much power as an average U.S. household uses over 73 days. A study published in Nature in 2018 estimated that the process of verifying and mining Bitcoin could on its own raise global temperatures above 2 degrees Celsius by 2048. This was before the most explosive growth in, of Bitcoin trading took off. Bitcoin's energy consumption has almost tripled since that time. Yet with tens of millions of people around the world owning crypto assets, and with thousands of fervent believers, cryptocurrencies seem to have something for everyone. Conservatives like Carlson love Bitcoin's supposed anti-inflation mechanisms. Millennial millionaires geek out on making money through disruptive technologies. Handfuls of Redditors have gotten rich overnight. And techno-libertarians imagine a world governed by autonomous individuals unfettered by the state. As crypto moves into mainstream financial circles, many of its proponents are trying to redirect attention from its disastrous climate implications and associations with money laundering by giving the technology a left-wing makeover. Cryptocurrency left crypto devotees argue, or devotees, is a leaderless movement to unseat the plutocrats who have benefited hand over fist from our centralized banking system. A recent article by Alex Gladstein in Bitcoin Magazine, quote, check your financial privilege, argues. Critics in the dollar bubble miss the bigger global picture, that anyone with access to the internet can now participate in Bitcoin, a new money system with equal rules for all participants, running on a network that does not censor or discriminate, 
used by individuals who do not need to show a passport or an ID, and held by citizens in a way that is hard to confiscate and impossible to debase. Until now, governments and corporations have controlled the rules of money. That is changing. Anyone with internet access now has an escape from their unreliable and exploitative national monetary system. Gladstein has penned a series of lengthy articles, each of which claim that Bitcoin will answer one or another variety of global inequality. Africans living in countries that had been colonized by France and which, despite their independence, still have their economic fates determined by French banks, could free themselves from the monetary domination of the French-backed currency, the CFA franc. Palestinians in Gaza who are not only physically barred from free movement but are also economically dependent on their oppressors can now, quote, buy the dip and make money off Bitcoin investments. Echoing the same sentiment, Jack Maulers, the founder of Strike, a digital wallet company, gave an emotionally wrought speech at this summer's Bitcoin 2021 conference in Miami, Florida. As he reported on his recent mission to El Salvador, Mahler spent three months in El Salvador and worked with the neoliberal authoritarian administration of President Nayib Bukele to introduce Bitcoin as legal tender there. A law stipulating that businesses must accept Bitcoin as a form of payment was later passed by El Salvador's Congress in the middle of the night. Through tears, the 27-year-old Maulers told attendees about El Salvador's dirt roads and broken ATMs and the many unbanked Salvadorans that he met. Quote, it was sad. There just wasn't a lot of hope. I gave talks. I talked to kids. I told them, man, we've got this. Bitcoin's here. We've got this. Holy shit. You're talking about people who don't have reliable electricity and don't have reliable internet service, that the future is online money? This is nuts. Sorry, that was my side note. Maulers, whose father founded one of the largest futures brokerages in Chicago, and whose net worth is unknown, but is most certainly in the millions, told attendees that he's proud of everyone in the room. Quote, I hope you find solace in knowing that you helped those that haven't been helped in 250 years. Forget the haters, Maulers assured the audience, quote, The kid I went to high school with is going to lean over a bar in Manhattan and drink a $35 old-fashioned and tell me Bitcoin doesn't matter. Privileged fucking asshole. But there are a few glaring problems with this narrative. To begin with, the results thus far in El Salvador are underwhelming at best. Remittances, salary transfers from Salvadoran migrants in the United States to families back home, make up about a quarter of the nation's gross domestic product. So having a means of transferring money across borders without fees or intermediaries could be helpful. In fact, Bitcoin transactions do come with often high fees. More importantly, Bitcoin's value fluctuates wildly, and most Salvadorans have been hesitant to use it because of this volatility. Whatever they may gain from avoiding exploitative Western Union fees, they may lose much more from the fluctuating values of remittances that come in the form of Bitcoin. The adoption of Bitcoin, in fact, triggered mass protests in El Salvador, where according to a recent poll conducted by El Salvador's Chamber of Commerce, 93% of Salvadoran people are opposed to its adoption. Nevertheless, the government created a 
Chivo Wallet app to send and receive Bitcoin transactions and gave $30 worth of Bitcoin to anyone who adopted the wallet. The New York Times reported that many ATMs ran out of dollars soon thereafter as Salvadorans rushed to convert their Bitcoins to dollars and withdraw cash. The Chiva wallets themselves have also been vulnerable to hackers who have stolen funds from hundreds of Salvadorans with no recourse. Now President Bukele has announced plans to build a Bitcoin city at the foot of a volcano designed in the shape of a coin. The city will harness the volcano's geothermal energy to power Bitcoin mining. These problems stem from the fact that Bitcoin and other digital tokens should more aptly be called crypto assets rather than cryptocurrencies. Speculators have made and lost phenomenal amounts of money through trading crypto and crypto-based derivatives. But so far, cryptocurrencies have gained very little traction as practical medium of exchange due to the volatility of their value and the logistical impracticalities associated with transactions. The claim that cryptocurrency cannot be debased is also laid to waste by this volatility. The value of the dollar may erode because of inflation, but it has never seen its value cut in half in a single day. There's a deeper problem still. Even in a best-case yet unlikely scenario where cryptocurrencies could play a stable and seamless role in facilitating monetary transactions in the developing world, it assumes that the main roadblock to global equality is that people don't have access to financial products, microloans, and property rights. But capitalism has created deep geopolitical and social problems that cannot be overcome with a monetary techno-fix. The key global exchange that we face is not one of technology, but of class power. The profoundly unequal and U.S.-dependent economy in El Salvador, for instance, has its roots in a monocrop export economy, first developed under Spanish colonization and later enforced by U.S.-driven free trade agreements. And of course, a 12-year U.S.-backed civil war devastated Salvadoran society and the economy. The country is now in a deep economic crisis, and the adoption of Bitcoin has only triggered further instability. On top of this, entangling El Salvador with the CO2-emitting Bitcoin mining schemes will diminish the country's limited energy supply and make the population more vulnerable to the ravages of climate change. The proposition by Gladstein that Bitcoin could bring liberation to Palestine is an even greater stretch. Unironically, opening an article about Bitcoin in Palestine with the observation that the Palestinian he interviewed only has access to electricity a few hours per day, Gladstein moves on to ask, quote, Why can't Palestinians easily order goods on Amazon or receive money from abroad? As though Amazon orders are high on the list of Palestinian concerns. He rightly chronicles the kneecapping of the Palestinian economy by Israeli occupation, but eventually concludes that, quote, Money lies at the very root of Palestinian struggles. They do not have control of their currency. The systematic undermining of the Palestinian economy, in fact, reflects a much deeper colonial ill. Will Bitcoin overturn decades of ethnic cleansing, occupation, control of resources, and continued brutality and annexation? Or will it simply provide Palestinians who already suffer from deep economic precarity a means to speculate with meager funds, assuming they have access to the internet to do so. 
On the other hand, Venezuela, where the economy has been in a years-long hyperinflationary freefall, provides a good test case for Bitcoin and other digital tokens. Cryptocurrency have become popular in Venezuela as a tool to receive remittances, a medium to exchange the floundering Venezuelan bolivar for foreign currencies, and a means to help businesses hedge against the inflation of the bolivar. Yet crypto use is mostly limited to Venezuelan businesses and the wealthy, while the majority of Venezuelans have neither stable internet connections nor enough money to dabble in crypto trading. Even Bitcoin devotees know this. In an interview with Bitcoin Magazine entitled Bitcoin Can't Fix Everything, Peter McCormick explained with not-so-subtle disdain, quote, When I went to the slums, it became painfully clear that these people aren't going to download a Bitcoin wallet and back up their private keys, right? Venezuelan crypto supporter Diana Aguilar similarly reported for Coindesk, quote, The fallacy that Bitcoin could save a country's whole economy assumes the country meets all the requirements for mainstream adoption. Just to start, there would be needed widespread computer and financial literacy, reliable electricity infrastructure, stable internet service, an economy that not only allows the majority of citizens to count on a device to keep the digital wallets, but also the safe migration from fiat money to digital money. The crypto community desperately wants to prove that digital tokens like Bitcoin can be used as currency and that they can save failing economic systems. But when given the exact perfect storm of hyperinflation, government support for cryptocurrencies, and growing popularity of digital tokens, the project still falls flat. Beyond the logistical impracticalities of making it work are the deeper geopolitical causes of Venezuela's failing economy at the heart of which is a century-old dependence on oil. When oil prices collapsed in 2014, this brought about a spiraling economic crisis. Combined with ongoing U.S. interference and devastating economic sanctions, these factors have created a political and economic pressure cooker in Venezuela. Underlying the conviction that cryptocurrencies can level the global playing field or the domestic one, is the assumption that the decentralized technology behind blockchains is inherently equalizing. It isn't. To the contrary, researcher and writer Olivier Judel has chronicled the ways in which American hegemony over governing infrastructure of the internet and platforms on the network have only exacerbated global inequalities. Judel notes that the Pacific Islands have become a tech frontier for blockchain because of, quote, regulatory openness based on imperial power imbalances, allowing for tax shelters and tax-free economic development zones. Quote, tech experimentation in the developing world has a benefit of connecting companies to aid funding streams and outsourcing risk to some of the most fragile environments in the world, with value extracted for the benefit of stakeholders, including private entrepreneurs and large companies. There may be blockchain technology or future blockchain innovations that could be used for good. Not all cryptocurrencies use the climate-destroying proof-of-work process, for instance. And not all blockchain technology powers cryptocurrencies per se. There are some who argue that blockchain-powered decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs, provide models to cooperatively run businesses, or that non-fungible tokens, NFTs, 
can help artists realize better compensation through royalties that are programmed into a digital artwork's metadata. But the underlying logic of cryptocurrencies entrenches rather than subverts free market capitalism in several ways. First, the market determines which crypto assets and technologies are invested in. For instance, there are alternate blockchain processes such as proof-of-stake that are less damaging to the environment. In order to participate in verifying blockchain transactions, participants in those currencies provide their trustworthiness by locking away certain amount of crypto coins rather than by solving mathematical problems. But Bitcoin's hegemony within the crypto industry incentivizes investment to flow to the energy-guzzling proof-of-work blockchains. Thus, coins using proof-of-work algorithms currently make up over 65% of the crypto market. The dynamic isn't different from the one which forces the planet into an interminable wait for the market to properly incentivize a transition away from fossil fuels. And in fact, it's worse. Cryptocurrencies aren't regulated by the EPA or any other institution. Nor do they have a centralized headquarters to protest or tens of thousands of workers within the industry who have the potential to organize against it. The logic of the market rewards profitability above all else. The world of cryptocurrency reflects this same logic, but with no government regulations to enforce any restraints. Second, crypto assets have promoted the commodification of everything. From Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey's first tweet, to virtual land grabs on the metaverse and the financialization of our daily interactions. As co-founder of the DAO software company Syndicate, Ian Lee put it into the Financial Times, the goal is to turn the internet users and contributors into investors and vice versa. An article in Coindesk explained, Crypto can turn passive efforts on the internet, scrolling, exploring, socializing, into financial transactions. What would it mean to live in a world where every single image, song, health record, Twitter like, and blog post had a discrete token attached? Things don't go viral without a massive network of individual interactions. In a tokenized future, an early like on a post that eventually becomes popular could be a kind of historical artifact. Trading it on the secondary market might prove lucrative. Same goes for a highly rated comment in a comment section. Whereas the internet created a vast and replicable abundance of digital content, crypto assets introduce enforced scarcity to the digital world in order to claim ownership. An NFT assigns a digital receipt to an item, which is verified on a blockchain. NFTs can thus commercialize any digital item and bind it to a system of ownership, financial transactions, and speculation. Meanwhile, DAOs set up organizational structures in which you must purchase tokens to participate in discussions. Lastly, as media studies professor Nathan Schneider has put it, both proof-of-work and proof-of-stake technology entrench a persistent plutocracy, whatever the libertarian aspirations of their creators. Both processes, he notes, grant governance rights roughly in proportion to a given node's buy-in on the network, through computing power or token holdings, respectively. The more machines are put to work solving puzzles, the greater the chances of mining a Bitcoin.
As the complexity of the computations increases, it becomes harder for the average person to profit, since one must have thousands of machines to remain competitive, Schneider explains. And so the system begins to resemble a traditional centralized capitalist system that remains profitable to the very wealthy. The very unequal access to mining cryptocurrencies belies the argument made by Gladstein and others that, quote, anyone with access to the Internet can equally participate in the system and be subject to the same rules. Indeed, a recent paper by finance professors Antoinette Skor and Igor Makarov found that as of the end of 2020, the top 1,000 investors controlled about 3 million bitcoins out of just under 19 million. The top 10,000 Bitcoin accounts held 5 million Bitcoins. As the Wall Street Journal pointed out recently, this means that approximately 0.01% of Bitcoin holders control 27% of Bitcoin in circulation. By comparison in the US where the wealth inequality is as most extreme in decades, the top 1% of households hold about a third of all wealth. That's an almost 100-fold increase in inequality as it compares to the dollar economy. This underscores an important point. Decentralized technology does not necessarily translate into less hierarchy or greater democracy. As Score points out, quote, Somebody who can easily spend $100 million worth of Bitcoin and sell it or buy it can have a massive price impact on the market. While as a regular retail investor, you might suddenly find yourself X percent down because of a mass volatility, which might be created by a few large investors randomly deciding to sell some of their holdings. The Financial Times reported on this exact phenomenon when cryptocurrency investments tanked at the beginning of December 2021, likely due to the actions of one or two big players unloading large amounts of Bitcoin. Investors who are powerful enough to influence the value of a coin through the movement of their assets are reverently referred to as whales in crypto circles. The financial clout held by whales is also magnified by the large social media presence many of them possess, such as a single tweet from Elon Musk, the billionaire founder of Tesla, can send the value of currency skyrocketing or plummeting. Since speculative growth depends on people's perceptions of rising value, Having the ability to hype up a large audience grants crypto influencers a lot of power. In 2018, Phil Graham and Hernando de Soto penned an op-ed entitled, quote, How Blockchain Can End Poverty, for the Wall Street Journal. Graham had previously been the chairman of the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs and sponsored the Graham-Leach-Billy Act in 1999, which removed Depression-era laws regulating banking and finance. Ending these regulations, especially Glass-Steagall, contributed greatly to the financial crisis of 2008. DeSoto is a Peruvian neoliberal econom economist at the forefront of policies favoring deregulation and property rights. They argued, quote, The great economic divide in the world today is between the 2.5 billion people who can register property rights and the 5 billion who are impoverished in part because they can't. If blockchain technology can empower public and private efforts to register property rights on a single computer platform, we can share the blessings of private property registration with the whole world. Instead of destroying private property to promote a Marxist equality in poverty, 
Perhaps we can bring property rights to all mankind. Where property rights are insured, so are the prosperity, freedom, and ownership of wealth that brings real stability and peace. The technology that powers cryptocurrency is varied and its underlying philosophy runs a spectrum. But at the heart of crypto culture lies a belief that financialized property is the key to human advancement and that economic incentives lead to personal autonomy. In fact, that is not so different from mainstream capitalist ideology. Arguably, it's worse. Crypto libertarians want to trade a world run by institutions that benefit the wealthy by design, but are somewhat regulated by a democratic process, for a world that is controlled completely by the ultra-wealthy, with no mechanism for democratic control. The argument from crypto's left proponents is that a technocratic social order will free us from hierarchy and state domination. Ultimately, this is a faux-left position that has no proven track record in the actual practice of trading in cryptocurrencies. Instead, the world that has been erected around blockchain technology is characterized by the increased concentration of wealth and power. Insofar as there are anti-establishment goals within the crypto community, they stem from cyber-libertarian ideology that distrusts states and public institutions. That's an understandable position to arrive at, a reaction against decades of neoliberal states hollowing out government services, attacking the working class, and creating profound inequality. Trust in depleted and broken government institutions is abysmally low. Yet the answer is not to toss out the entire edifice of the state and representative government, but to push for greater accountability and reforms, including public control of banks and redistributive fiscal policies. At minimum, there are simpler and less planet-warming solutions on hand to solve many of the problems that crypto purports to address. The state, if it's pushed by collective action, can play a positive interventionist role. For instance, banking the unbanked through postal banking, or making money transfers accessible by regulating financial services companies and capping transfer fees. It's true that the government will not, on its own, implement reforms for the greater good. But utilizing the features of representative democracy offers us a better shot at making change than the shadowy world of cryptocurrencies. Ultimately, liberation doesn't come from atomized action and individual economic power. It flows through democratic movements for civil and economic rights for every human on the planet, whether they possess a digital token or not. And finally, a piece published at EFF.org, written by Joe Mullen. People don't want outsiders reading their private messages. Not their physical mail, not their texts, not their DMs, nothing. It's a clear and obvious point. But one place it doesn't seem to have reached is the U.S. Senate. A group of lawmakers led by Senator Richard Blumenthal and Senator Lindsey Graham have reintroduced the Earn It Act, an incredibly unpopular bill from 2020 that was dropped in the face of overwhelming opposition. Let's be clear, the new Earn It Act would pave the way for a massive new surveillance system run by private companies that would roll back some of the most important privacy and security features in technology used by people around the globe. It's a framework for private actors to, 
actors to scan every message sent online and report violations to law enforcement. And it might not stop there. The Earn It Act could ensure that anything hosted online, backups, websites, cloud photos, and more is scanned. The bill empowers every U.S. state or territory to create sweeping new internet regulations by stripping away the critical legal protections for websites and apps that currently prevent such a free-for-all, specifically Section 230. The states will be allowed to pass whatever type of law they want to hold private companies liable as long as they somehow relate their new rules to online child abuse. The goal is to get states to pass laws that will punish companies when they deploy end-to-end encryption or offer other encrypted services. This includes messaging services like WhatsApp, Signal, and iMessage, as well as web hosts like Amazon Web Services. We know that EarnIt aims to spread the use of tools to scan against law enforcement databases because the bill's sponsors have said so. In a Myths and Facts document distributed by the bill's proponents, it even names the government-approved software that they could mandate, PhotoDNA, a Microsoft program with an API that reports directly to law enforcement databases. The document also attacks Amazon for not scanning enough of its content. Since Amazon is the home of Amazon Web Services, host of a huge number of websites, That implies the bill's aim is to ensure that anything hosted online gets scanned. Separately, the bill creates a 19-person federal commission dominated by law enforcement agencies, which will lay out voluntary, quote, best practices for attacking the problem of online child abuse. Regardless of whether state legislatures take their lead from that commission or from the bill's sponsor themselves, we know where the road will end. Online service providers, even the smallest ones, will be compelled to scan user content with government-approved software like PhotoDNA. If EarnIt supporters succeed in getting large platforms like Cloudflare and Amazon Web Services to scan, they might not even need to compel smaller websites. The government will already have access to the user data through the platform. A provision of the bill that purports to protect services using encryption doesn't come close to getting the job done. State prosecutors or private attorneys would be able to drag an online service provider into court over accusations that their users committed crimes, then use the fact that the service chose to, chose to use encryption as evidence against them, a strategy that's specifically allowed under Earn It. It's hard to imagine anyone daring to use the supposed defense of encryption, Instead, they'll simply do what the bill's sponsors are demanding, break end-to-end encryption, and use the government-approved scanning software. Just as bad providers of services like backup and cloud storage who don't currently offer user-controlled encryption are even less likely to protect their users by introducing new security features because they will risk liability under EarnIt. Senators supporting the Earn It Act say they need new tools to prosecute cases over child sexual abuse material, or CSAM. But the methods proposed by Earn It take aim at the security and privacy of everything hosted on the Internet. Possessing, viewing, or distributing CSAM is already written into law as an extremely serious crime, with a broad framework of existing laws seeking to eradicate it. 
Online service providers that have actual knowledge of an apparent or imminent violation of current laws around CSAM are required to make a report to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, NCMEC, a government entity which forwards reports to law enforcement agencies. Section 230 already does not protect online service providers from prosecutions over CSAM. In fact, it doesn't protect online services from prosecution under any federal criminal law at all. Internet companies are already required to support suspected CSAM if they come across it, and they report on a massive scale. That scale already comes with a lot of mistakes. In particular, new scanning techniques used by Facebook have produced many millions of reports to law enforcement, most of them apparently inaccurate. Federal law enforcement has used the massive number of reports produced by this low-quality scanning to suggest that there has been a huge uptick in CSAM images. Then, armed with misleading statistics, the same law enforcement groups make new demands to break encryption or, as with Earnit, hold companies liable if they don't scan user content. Independent child protection experts aren't asking for systems to read everyone's private messages. Rather, they recognize that children, particularly children who might be abused or exploited, need encrypted and private messaging just as much as, if not more than, the rest of us. No one, including the most vulnerable among us, can have privacy or security online without strong encryption. In their Myths and Facts sheet, the bill's supporters have said the, the quiet part out loud. Some of the document's falsehoods are breathtaking, such as the statement that Internet businesses are provided, quote, blanket and unqualified immunity for sexual crimes against children. It falsely reassures small business owners who dare to have websites that the government ordered scanning they will be subject to will come, quote, without hindering their operations or creating significant costs. And it says that using automated tools that submit images and videos to law enforcement databases is, quote, not at odds with preserving online privacy. The senators supporting the bill have said that their mass surveillance plans are somehow magically compatible with end-to-end encryption. That's completely false, no matter whether it's called client-side scanning or another misleading new phrase. The Earnit Act doesn't target big tech. It targets every individual internet user, treating us all as potential criminals who deserve to have every single message, photograph, and document scanned and checked against a government database. Since direct government surveillance would be blatantly unconstitutional and provoke public outrage, Earnit uses tech companies, from the largest ones to the very smallest ones, as its tools. The strategy is to get private companies to do the dirty work of mass surveillance. This is the same tactic that the U.S. government used last year when law enforcement agencies tried to convince Apple to subvert its own encryption and scan users' photos for them. That plan has stalled out after overwhelming opposition. It's the same strategy the UK law enforcement is using to convince the British public to give up its privacy, having spent public money on a laughable publicity campaign that demonizes companies that use encryption. We won't waver in our support for privacy and security for all and the encryption tools that support those values. This bill may be voted on by the Senate Judiciary Committee in just a few days. We've told the U.S. Senate that we will not back down in our opposition to earn it. We need you to speak up as well. 
And according to GovTrack.us, the Earn It Act status, uh, it was ordered reported on February 10, 2022. The committees assigned to this bill sent it to the House or Senate as a whole for consideration on February 10, 2022. So that is the current status of that bill that will do much harm and provide not a fraction of the benefit it purports to. And that will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. You can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can check out all those back episodes and find out more at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. Here is Evan Greer with the song Surveillance Capitalism for our moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Once consent was manufactured Now it's harvested for clicks Algorithms make decisions Filter bubbles make us sick We're all connected to machines Every second, but we just can't look away We all want to be seen, but behind the screen There's a nightmare dressed up as a dream And we can't wake up Private companies think like we have more power and more information on us than governments do Without any sort of infrastructure to hold them accountable Every thought Started, processed, optimized. Senator, we run out. Eye movements, facial expressions. Manipulation, monetized. We're all connected to machines. Paid every second, but we just can't look away. We all want to be seen, but behind the screen. There's a nightmare dressed up as a dream And we can't wake up There's a difference between knowing something and doing something about it. We assume that there should be a prison system. There should be a surveillance apparatus. I think that these assumptions need to be questioned. An infinite playground, a library, human creativity. They paved it over, put up walls Now it's billboards, big bucks, shopping malls Paid every second, but we just can't look away We all want to be seen, but behind the screen There's a nightmare dressed up as a dream And we can't wake up Neither math nor machines can extract four centuries of white And we can't wake up Neither math nor machines can extract four centuries of white supremacy from American policing. 
simply inserting digital technologies into discriminatory policing without addressing its fundamental flaws can only serve to supersize that discrimination, can only serve to reduce community safety, and can only violate the civil rights of the most vulnerable among us. Nothing else can happen.